you are at the net. And welcome, friends, to another episode of the At The Net podcast, powered by Tex-Mex Productions. Working the soundboards in the back of the house are our producers, D-Mac and Dave the Brain. Time to say hello to your hosts, Craig Bell and AJ Shabria, as they're about to take us through three sets of tennis, talking life and all the news as it seems to them. Ladies and gentlemen, Craig Bell. Thanks to our Appenet podcast group for that fabulous introduction, and welcome fans of the great game. You're listening to Season 1, Episode 32 of Athenet Podcast with A.J. Chabry. That's you, right? A.J.C.? That's right, yes. And me, CB1, Craig Bell, who are talking the great game of tennis as it seems, seems to us. To us, right? Yeah. yeah. Thanks also go out to our good amigos at Tex-Mex Productions. That would be Darian D. Mac McBrayer and Dave the Brain DeLeo from Back of the House, who are on the soundboards. Moving the dials and buttons to make us sound like real people. I think we're real tonight again. We, we are real. We are real for the 32nd time, bro. Wow, that's amazing. Isn't it? Yeah. Wow. Uh, also, be sure to check out our good work on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Anchor, Brinker, CastBox, Overcast Podcasts, uh, Pocket Cast, yeah. Radio Public, and Spotify. Wow, that's all. That's, that's a lot of podcasts, isn't it? Yeah. It, it? It's another way of saying, which podcasters do all the time, is wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for us. Right? Yeah, basically okay. we're there. And it used to be just a small list, and now it's, it's grown. Yeah. We're a, an award-winning podcast all of a sudden. We are? It's happening. Oh, okay. Y'all, if you say so. Okay. All right, also, if you are female, sorry, sorry guys, and would like to read the opening intro, for the Athenet podcast and be an Athenet girl, let us know as we are always looking for new female voices to do the intro, even in a foreign language, right, AJC? Even in a foreign accent, too. We've enjoyed that. Yeah. Yes, we've had a few of those. Well, tonight's special guest, we are really excited about this podcast, our 32nd one in the can, as they say. It's with a gentleman that's uh, no stranger to the uh, broadcasting world. He was also a, a tennis professional, got smart, got out of the business, mm-hmm. and has made his mark in uh, the music world. His name is Dolph Ramsour. Dolph, how are you doing this evening? I'm honored to be here, uh, oh. and I, uh, I've been really enjoying your podcast. I miss tennis. You know, I've been out of tennis for a long time, and I, um, it was kind of my first, well, music and tennis, both kind of my first love, and uh, I, mean, I still love tennis. So, but, uh, yeah, honored to be here. Well, we're glad to have you here. For those of you who don't know, Dolph, Dolph's from North Carolina. If you, mm-hmm. can, you can kind of detect a little bit of the accent. You love the accent. In, yeah. in the voice. I always like the North Carolina accent. Carolina. Uh, Carolina, right there. Uh, born and raised basically kind of in the Concord, North Carolina area. Uh, grew up with music in the, the family. Uh, did do a little tennis teaching uh, for a while. Earned a degree at Ferris State University. Yeah, went to college for tennis for management. Tennis. Right. Yeah. Shout out to the Bulldogs. From That's Fer- right. Ferris State University up in Michigan, where I'm sure that uh, it's probably about three feet of snow on the ground right now. Right, Dolph? Something like that in March? That's right. right. Cold. (laughs) Very cold. cold. But then around the year 2000, I guess, that would be about 20 years ago, you started off uh, with an independent record label, you know, uh, management company, and uh, the rest, they say, is history, right? Correct. You know, even while at Ferris, you know, I've always been... Well, I've always been tennis crazy and music crazy, and even at Ferris, I was sending off resumes to record labels, but I didn't know how to get into the business, but did go to Ferris. I got my degree in professional tennis management, and I worked at a lot of great country clubs. I worked at um, John's Island Club in Vero Beach, Florida. Oh, that's one of the finest um, clubs yes. in Florida, yeah. Yep, the Louisville Country Club and. Kentucky, that's an old traditional club. I worked at Forsyth Country Club in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and I worked at the Louisville Golf Club in the mountains of North Carolina, in Louisville, North Carolina. It's a very uh, traditional old club that dates back to like 
1892. And then I was a tennis director for the city of Winston. So yeah, I, I, I sure miss it. You know, there's certain things I miss about tennis. Um, one odd thing is when I do play, opening a can of tennis balls oh. and the smell of a can of tennis balls is, I don't know, it, it takes me back. No question. Love that sound and the smell. And then yep. the, the just the feeling of, uh, of opening up and that first couple of thuds on the ground that's a great feeling <laughs> let's, let's start kind of at the beginning way back when you were a young young pup there in the uh concord north carolina area mom and dad were they into music i guess is that what what uh, started out the love of music well my dad yeah my dad loved all forms of music and at the time you know in the early 70s johnny cash was he was sort of the king of the household and you know johnny was the north star and we kind of followed him uh but my dad loved country music he loved rock and roll pavarotti was on tv he would get us in front of pavarotti if chad atkins was playing on hee hall he would say you know you gotta watch you know he's the world's greatest guitar player and so i'm real thankful my dad was had an open mind to all four of music you know my mother was a johnny mattis fan if i still ask her today who's your favorite singer is johnny mattis Interesting. So, early, early, mid seventies, right? Man, you're a Renaissance man. You're all yeah. over the place. Yeah, I, I was expecting the Blues Brothers line. Yeah, both kinds yeah. of music, country and western. <laughs> western. <laughs> no. Yeah, that's right. Right. Uh, then I grew up about ten miles from Davison College in Davison. Late at night, when I was uh, 12, 13, and as a teenager, they had students. It was classical during the day, and then the college station. The, the students would take over the airways and run their radio station, and it was alternative. They played alternative music. That really fostered my uh, love of punk music and post-punk music and alternative rock. Kind of the was that in the eighties when you were in college? Eighties college rock. Correct, but you know, going back to the early eighties, Davison was, and I grew up ten miles from there, so. At night, going to bed, I would listen to that. But I also loved folk music. I loved all forms of music. Then I realized that North Carolina was such a hotbed of uh, musical talent. You know, it's a poor state. And when you have a poor area, one of y'all is from Oklahoma, right? Craig is, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, Oklahoma is, I mean, it's, it's a great musical state as well. Uh, it, it seems like when you have poor areas, not to knock Oklahoma or, or North Carolina. Oh, go, go right ahead. People look, <laughs> yeah, people look inward to entertain themselves. So just North Carolina alone, you know, John Coltrane's from North Carolina. He's the greatest saxophone player to ever live. Uh, Doc Watson, famous guitarist from North Carolina. Earl Scruggs. Wow, um, Earl Scruggs. Yeah, that's famous a big banjo sure. player to ever live. You know, so it... It goes on, and I mean, there's so many. It's such a melting pot of music, and it's all forms from beach music, the gospel music, to R&B, to blues. Uh, North Carolina's represented. So I learned that early on, and but then I loved alternative music. But yeah, I don't mean to ramble on about it, but... No, no, keep going. You know, as a kid, Cabrera, I grew up in Cabarrus County, and Cabarrus County had the largest textile mill in the world, cotton mm. mill, and they would make 300,000 towels a day. A very poor area, but most people had a piano in the living room, and most people would get around it and sing gospel songs. Right. Um, that was that was pretty commonplace. So, music is very. Um, it's I eat, drink, and sleep. But tennis, I, I'm a, I mean, I keep up with the tennis, um, the professional game 
to this day, and I miss well, I miss certain things about teaching. I mean, and it's not all teaching players that are advanced players. I mean, I miss teaching a beginning player, yeah. getting them excited about how great of a sport tennis is and how they can play it. You know, until they're 100 years old, it's a very special thing, and I miss it. It's a great game. Well, we're talking with uh, music producer slash tennis professional Dolph Ramsour. Uh, Dolph, how did you get involved in the great game? Let's, let's kind of peel back. Yeah, and talk, talk a little bit about music. Well, what what got you involved in tennis? And and was there you know your grandma, grandpa, dad, mom? You know, or just you just walked down to the Davidson tennis courts and start hitting the ball against the backboard? What what got you going in the great game? Uh, yeah, it's a funny thing. So, speaking about my grandparents, so both my grandfathers worked over 50 years in the cotton mill. My grandmother worked 45 years in the cotton mill. I don't think they ever picked up a tennis racket or walked on a tennis court. Um, you know, Cabarrus County, again, very poor town, area. Now, when Billie Jean King and Bobby Riggs played the big match, I guess that was in 70, was that 73 or 74? Yeah, about 73, yeah. The um, Battle of the Sexes there in the Astrodome. 73 in Houston, yeah. yeah. That inspired a lot of people to get tennis rackets and go out to a public park and hit tennis balls. And I think that's pretty much the thing. That was the jumping off spot for my parents getting tennis rackets. And we didn't really know. I mean, they didn't know anything. I mean, we'd go out in jeans. We didn't know anything about tennis. And I guess my dad was a very good baseball player. He was a good athlete. So I I guess right off the bat, they could tell I, I had good hand-eye coordination. I could run and hit the ball pretty good, even five, six years old. So that morphed into getting kind of discovered by the Davidson College tennis coaches as a little kid because I grew up 10 miles from there. And oddly enough, Davidson had clay courts. I mean, one of the really? few at colleges at the time that had, they had about nine or 10 clay courts. Never heard of a college. And a few team. hard courts. Right. Davidson, unlike Cabarrus County where I grew up, Davidson is like an Ivy League school here in the Piedmont section of North Carolina. It's kind of, I wouldn't say it's out of place, but people in my high school, I don't know, you didn't even think about uh, going to Davidson. It was such a far-reaching place. I mean, I'm not even talking about being able to do the schoolwork. I'm just talking about being able to afford to go to Davidson. Mm. So I was so fortunate that the coaches there took me under their wing. I remember going over there taking lessons from the coaches and wearing jeans, uh, <laughs> which I know that sounds odd, but we didn't know. We just didn't know any better. You're just an early trendsetter. They, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. Jeff Frank was the coach at Davidson, and Jeff, he coached the, Ju the U.S. Davis Cup, the Junior Davis Cup, uh, would take them over to the Italian Open, like junior championships. So he would take, when I was being coached by him, he was taking like Eric Corita, Chip Hooper. I think it took Crickstein over there. I remember him coming back and telling me, because he went numerous years to the Italian Open, and he would tell me about Borg. And as you all know, Borg, unlike any tennis player that has ever been on the, player, the planet, was a rock star. Yeah, the hair, um, the looks. Yeah. Yeah. He, he was a Hollywood Federal icon popular. right there. Ford was at a totally different scene, a different level. It was part rock star, part zen, master. <laughs> there was so much sort of intrigue about uh, the Iceman. I mean, he was just a different kind of guy. And Jeff Frank would tell me that, you know, he would watch Borg 
Borgwood hit the ball about six to eight feet over the net, landed around the service line and just down the middle. And then when the other opposing, when the opposing player would start moving him around, they were done. Done. It was, Borg was so fast that could not get over how great Borg. I mean, this is, I guess, 77, 78, 79. I mean, it's right in Borg's prime. Jeff Frank there at Davison, yeah, he was my coach. And I was so fortunate because my parents were blue collar. You know, my dad luckily worked, he worked in the cotton mill for a short period and got a job at UPS. So we were a very blue collar family. And, you know, all of my friends that I grew up with didn't have the opportunities that I had growing up just because of tennis. I mean, I can't uh, thank uh, Jeff Frank and just the sport of tennis for giving me opportunities and was my way out of the cotton mill uh, ghetto. You know, I remember we would go to tennis tournaments and we would be in a pickup truck. Jeff Duncan and Lawson Duncan. Lawson was older than me, but Lawson, you know, Lawson got up maybe top 25, 20 in the world or something. Yeah, I think think, third, fourth round of Wimbledon a few times too. I think think he made it to the quarters. Uh, He got beat at the quarters uh, by Vlander and and, um, at the French. French, yeah. They were, I think, I think they were very blue collar as well because I remember seeing them. I remember seeing Jeff. I think maybe he was in a pickup truck one time at a tennis truck. That was just an odd thing to see at the time in 1983, 82, 83. I don't mean to ramble on. No, no. Uh, but, but that's how I got into the sport of tennis is through through Davidson College. And like your buddy Johnny McLamb, who probably was driving up in a BMW and had probably about, you know, maybe 10 redhead professional rackets yeah, yeah. freshly strung with gut, uh, you know, had the latest feel of gear right. on. Yeah, the McLams, they were from the white-collar part of town, right? Uh, John was, they were kind of blue-collar as well. Oh, was he? He yeah. was. <laughs> he had yeah. a pickup truck uh, and a dog in the I'll, back? I'll, uh, one thing I will tell you about Davidson College, uh-huh. Jeff Frank told me that they hosted a big junior turn, a big 12 and under junior tournament. And I'm not sure if it was the clay court nationals or, or if it was the Southern open 12. And I don't know what the tournament was, but he did say McEnroe won it. And he had to go on the court, tell McEnroe if he had another outburst, he was kicking him. He was <laughs> him. And he said that, and I, I heard Gullickson talking about, I listened to his podcast y'all did with him. Oh, thanks. Yeah, that was episode 13, yeah. Yeah, really good. And Jeff Frank said that when he told McEnroe that, McEnroe played such great tennis after him almost being kicked out of the tournament, that when he had these outbursts, he would just take it to the next level. I just found that kind of funny when I was listening to Gullickson, and he was saying the same thing, that John kind of used it as a way to get kick-started and take things, you know, to the next level. So, and and for the kids uh, at home, very few brains can uh, can do that kind of gymnastics and get it done yeah. and actually improve during an out- outburst. And uh, it's, it's, it's a right. good thing to to talk about it and celebrate the few guys who else would you say gonzalez connors uh just a small list right who can do this yeah connors was another one both him and mac you know i was a borg fan i was a b-lander fan connors and McEnroe both i mean i respect that connors was he seemed to come off kind of as a blue collar kind of guy but man he could really get he could get a little nasty on the court yeah yeah the, um, the crotch grabbing and all he, yeah 
Speaking um, of nasty, that's Nastasi too. It was also in that club of three. The the, the, yes. the trifecta. Yeah. Yes. Of, Those three. Yeah. They uh, were definitely uh, above and beyond. Yeah. Would you think they play well? You know, like right now. I'm, I'm thinking. You know, because you look at the big three right now. You've got Federer, you've got uh, Joker, and you've got Rafa. So those three guys are totally different in tennis. But these three guys, McEnroe, Connors, and Nastasi, were just off the wall. It's kind of like wrestling. I know that you're from North Carolina. You probably have a bunch of wrestling oh, yeah. uh, favorites. You need a little bit of a wrestling match in tennis sometimes. But do you think that these guys would play well in today's tennis? Well, thinking about their games, Connor. Connors played the game like nobody before him or since. I would love to see someone do a whole science of how he hit the ball. Really bizarre style of tennis he played. McEnroe, I remember Jeff Frank telling me that McEnroe never hit the ball the same way during a match. I mean, like, if you think about it, he was just, uh, he could con- he could make contact in front, behind, and all these sort of different angles with his really incredible hands. Jeff always felt that the reason McEnroe couldn't win the French is when the guys really started hitting a lot of top, top spin, if you just hold your hands up above your heart and above your shoulders for three hours, um, he felt McEnroe would, would just get tired. And never heard that point. That's interesting. Yeah, and and really, uh, it came true. Even the one time Mac made the final in '84 with Lendl, and he was up uh, two sets and had some chances, and then about two and a half, three sets later, it was over, and John's hands were maybe dropping, and he missed one easy volley. high forehand volley. Yep. Yeah. Yep. That's right. So That's Jeff right. knows his stuff, uh, man. Yeah, he was definitely. Uh, yeah, I was pulling really hard. I was pulling really hard for Lendl. Uh, I was just never a Mac. I mean, the, the thing I respected most about McEnroe is he would wear the Davis Cup, the USA jacket. But I was just so in Borg camp because Borg was just cool. He was. Um, he was him. You know, the coolest to me, the coolest American tennis player to ever play was Venus Carolinas. The coolest. Um, the coolest. Yeah. I mean, nobody could, could, could come close. I saw Borg and Roscoe Tanner play. I believe at the I believe it was in '83. Borg had already retired. He he went on this little tour with Roscoe, and they played at the Charlotte Coliseum in Charlotte. And I believe that was '83. And I remember we got to get down. We we had nosebleed seats, but during the warmups, you could come down and, and watch. And I remember Borg's hand-eye coordination. That's when I realized. Well, I never want to hit another tennis ball. Just <laughs> uh, like, why should why could I why should I even keep playing after seeing his hand eye coordination? I remember Roscoe, and as you know, you, you think when you look back on YouTube and you see these video clips, it, it, for whatever reason, it doesn't look like they're hitting the ball that hard. But Roscoe could bring it, and I don't know how hard Roscoe Tanner was serving in 1983. I would guess 120 or more, maybe. It's just hard to say. But you know how you can catch a ball on your forehand? Like when when somebody hits a ball and it's going to be deep and it's going to go into the fence and you just catch it out of the air on your racket. Yeah. Ward was catching his serves with not only with his forehand, Ward would do this. 
this thing with his backhand and can catch the ball. Like a like a highlight. I mean, we we do it on normal yeah. balls, but yeah. to do it on something over 120 miles an hour, possibly 130 in Tanner's case, that's crazy. And and when Federer does it, um, let's say he cracks a serve, it's an inch out. The returner bangs it back and he catches it. All 15,000 people are like, "What? Ooh, ooh. and ahs, yeah. yeah." And and so you saw that in the Charlotte Coliseum. Yeah, and I was like, uh, "Well, I just never really." <laughs> I mean, he was just so good. I'm, and again, he's what twenty six years old. Right, he was he at retires. the hires. Yeah, yeah. Just walks away. Just says it. And yeah, I don't know if y'all followed it really closely. Uh, I'm not sure y'all's ages, but one thing that I always thought was kind of odd is when he got married. I don't know if he maybe won one more major after that. It just never seemed like he was the same guy after getting married it was odd it's it's um, funny you say that golf H- sorry go ahead well they had an hbo documentary about him and McEnroe, which i thought was really good it was great yeah it was called it was called fire and ice it was really exceptional yeah yeah but they didn't bring up his marriage it just seemed like something was different after that i don't i can't put my finger on it what you're talking about is his marriage, his first marriage to Mariana Simonescu, Romanian tennis player, actually. And we're yes. about the same age, I think, Dolph. And it was, I believe, uh, 76 or 77, I saw him at Forest Hills. And it was, it was kind of an event, number one, to see Borg, because he's a rock star. But number two, it was way back on the practice courts. It was a Hartrue, not a grass court, though they had at Westside Tennis Club grass and a Hartrue there. And, of course, the stadium was Hartrue. So I remember how people thought it was pretty great and a little odd that here's the number one tennis player in the world practicing with his wife warming up for a men's match. And uh, that may have been probably one of his best years, and I believe he did win. Um, almost everything but Forest Hills. Yes. Uh, he, he never won. Yeah, never uh, won that. Never se- won the U.S. Open. Yeah, 76 was Jimmy. 77 was Vilas. He never won it, but... Uh, he got to the finals a few times. But uh, several, never, yeah. But not... not. He yeah. was close on a couple of occasions. So close. Just couldn't punch that seventh match through. So, it's, it's, so it's, it's, it's funny to me, because not a lot of people make that observation that his career went down when he did get married. I know it's more obvious to say that about John, right? McEnroe. When he got married, right. it was it was uh, no more majors and maybe one or two semis after that. That, that was gasoline and fire. <laughs> that was. Him not, and yeah, O'Neal. Not, not fire and ice. That was gasoline and fire. <laughs> Fuel and fire. Man. Well, I'll tell, you, I, I'll tell you a quick story. When I, when I was a tennis pro at the Louisville Country Club, uh-huh. there was a, a family there with the last name of the English. And uh, there were two brothers, John and Sam, I think are their names. Uh, one of them was, a t- they were both, it was a big tennis family in Louisville. And one of them was a, a tennis promoter. They would promote professional tournaments. And I remember him telling me he would give Connors like appearance money. He would he'd give him a lot of money to teach a junior clinic. That's how he's kind of getting around giving them appearance fee money. I see. But, he went to the year Borg lost at Westside there against Connors. Was that 76 he lost? In the uh, finals? Yeah, 76 yes. final on the clay, yep. Yeah. I think he 
had a bad blister on his hand, I remember. A lot of I tape. watched that, I, I, I think. But anyway, he went to that match, and he said after the match they had a party. Connors wins. They have had a party, and it was a couple hours after the match. He goes to get in his car, and he hears something behind a tree. He walks around, and Borg is in his clothes with his rackets and was crying. Interesting. Wow. This is like this is like two hours after, three hours after the match. He was that distraught? So, I thought you were going to say something else. I was about to say, hey, this is a family show. <laughs> yeah. So I guess that's, um, it just goes to show Borg. Borg um, I mean, I know he had ice in his veins, but he took, I guess he, he took it so serious when he lost, I guess. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I just always thought that was a fascinating story. Definitely. So anyway, now, so let, t- tell us how how you really got to Ferris State. Did you played high school tennis, I'm sure, in North Carolina, and then what 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 prompted you to go to Ferris State? What was that? What was the background for for you going up to Michigan and learning the professional tennis management yep. degree and all that? So during um, I had to go. We've got to start this at Davidson again because Jeff Frank would have tennis camps during the summer. And when I was 14, I, I worked his tennis camp, and I would maintain the clay courts, and I would teach what the college uh, tennis team would, would be the instructors for all the kids, and I would help out. I would feed balls. and So that kind of got me thinking, well, maybe this is what I need to do in life. I mean, it sure as hell beat working in a cotton mill. <laughs> right, like that. Uh, and, I thought uh, you might uh, revert back to that going, hmm, okay. Yes. So then when I turned 16, I mean, the day I turned 16, I got a, uh, I got a job at Cabarrus Country Club in my hometown maintaining, the, started out maintaining the, the clay courts. And then, you know, I would help the tennis pro when he would put on clinics and um, when he would have a men's night, I would sub in and play. And then when he, he had a tennis camp as, as well, and I would help teach the juniors during his tennis. So that kind of planted the seed. And, you know, then I found out, I guess when I was about 17, I found out about the Ferris program. Uh-huh. And so I went there, and um, I mean, there were about 100 kids from all over. Uh, the program is, is kind of dwindled in numbers, but when I was there, it was a big program. Right. I remember that um, in the 80s. Yeah. What years yeah, were you there, yeah. Dolph? So I was there from 87 to 91, and, I mean, it was a great experience. I, I, I learned so much about how to teach tennis and how to run a pro shop, how, how uh, Ferris is a very trade kind of school. I mean, they have a great auto program that the big three really support they've got a plastics program they've got the top like heating and air like air conditioning they've got the top program for that one of the best farm pharmacy uh schools and they have a golf program that started before the tennis program so um but yeah i can't stress if if anybody out there is listening they want to get into teaching tennis and they're in high school and thinking about an alternative way to do something that would be a great program to 
Craig and I have lots of friends and colleagues who went to the PTM at Ferris State. Oh, and also uh, down here in Texas, Tyler Junior College was yeah. very popular for that. Oh, yeah. Too, yeah. yeah. Steve Smith ran yeah. the TJ yeah. program for a number of years. Who was who was uh, leading the program at Ferris State at the time you were there? Yeah, in the 80s. At the yeah, at the time, it was Scott Schultz. And Scott is now at the USTA. Mm -hmm. um, I, think, I think he helps with uh, some junior development programs that they have. But, you know, so you have to have internships. I had to have three internships. And since I was from far away, I would always teach there at the college. Uh, they would have junior clinics. But you have to have three internships. And I did one there for about nine months in Vero Beach at Johns Island, um, which I learned um, that was a, a great learning experience there. You know, I, we started this off about things I miss, you know, a can of tennis balls yeah. being one of them. I also miss, and I know a lot of people hate this about tennis when you're a tennis pro, but I miss really um, clay courts. I miss um, I miss maintaining clay courts. I kind of had a, I mean, <laughs> I looked at it almost like a zen garden, or I got really good at um, maintaining clay courts. And when you say maintain, so, brushing, lining, what about calcium chloride, rolling? What was your favorite thing? Yeah, all of, all of that. All taking four. off dead material, putting on, putting, you know, clay back on. All that whole process is an art, is an art form. So I started, I mean, I learned a lot at Davidson College about it. And when I worked at Cabarrus Country Club, I learned a lot about it. Uh, when I go down to Johns Island, I'm 19 years old, and they had a bank of three courts that they could never get right. Oh. And they told me, yeah, we can never keep these courts. Well, I look at it, and within three minutes, they didn't have enough sprinklers on the courts. So All the other courts had, but I don't know why anybody had never picked that. So, I mean, within my first, like, couple weeks there, I dig all these troughs on the courts, put in the sprinklers, and then the courts were perfect. But as far as, I mean, I missed that. I mean, I, I'm so crazy about clay courts. I didn't even thought about just getting a clay court just to maintain the clay court. Not even well, to play uh, necessarily. Well, come on over to my well, place. I got a couple. I would, I would play on it, but I just, it, I mean, one of my favorite things was just sweeping clay courts, lining clay courts. I love it. You're sort of in your own little world. It's a, it's a str I know it's a strange thing, but uh, I never looked at it as a hardship. A lot of tennis directors don't want to be bothered by it. I always prided myself. When I was a tennis director for the city of Winston-Salem, we would host the biggest junior uh, North Carolina tennis tournament there, and then we would host like the, the even seniors, so you'd have the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s there. And I remember the courts were in such disarray when I got there, and I got them in such great shape and would really kind of gear them up to where when we had those big tournaments that they were, I mean, the clay courts there were as nice as any courts in the state, and it was a public park. Um, uh, I even went as far as during that those tournaments that if people split sets, we would sweep the 
courts, sweep that court for the third set so they'd have a clean court. <laughs> so but, awesome, Dolph. Everyone, yeah. we're talking yeah, with uh, Dolph Ramseur, noted uh, North Carolina Music Hall of Famer and North Carolina Clay Court uh, yes. Hall of Famer. Yeah, Clay Court <laughs> Hall of Famer. You know, Dolph, one of my favorite things, uh, not quite this time of year, but usually in about April and May, you always see on social media or even the Tennis Channel a quick clip, a 10-second video of Stan Wawrinka or Rafa Nadal just in practice gear, you know, not in their official clothing that they'd wear in a match. And after practice, they're dripping with sweat and they're brushing and lining their own court, whether it's at Monte Carlo Country Club where they, clearly they have staff or it's at somebody's private court. And it's one of those things that just gets you back to the dirt and uh, it should be a yeah. pleasure to kind of brush your own court. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, you know, I really think Part of our issue we have here in the United States is kids are not playing on clay courts. Fully agree. Um, They're not I mean, quite getting I, the I, movement and the, the point construction that is so central to clay court tennis. No doubt. I mean, I, I, I can think back on Roddick. And Roddick was a very good, good pro. Um, but I can think back on him, like if his serve was not working, or his big forehand was not working, or someone had counteracted both of those things, he looked lost at times out there. And I, I feel the Europeans, yeah, I, I mean, it's pretty evident to me that that's one of the main reasons we're sort of uh, in the situation we're in. Because kids, for whatever reason, when I got to age 12, you know, past age 12, it was like, oh, you're playing on hard courts, and I never really understood that. I I, uh, I was so fortunate to play on clay courts here at Davidson College. Yeah. So I, I think that's one of the main main issues. Um, men, especially the men's game, from the United States point of view, is that we've got to get people playing on clay courts more. Fully agree. Um, hey, when you went up to Ferris State up in Michigan. You probably played a lot indoors. You had a hundred friends who were in the program with you. Were a lot of those guys on the team, and was it mostly indoor? And when it was outdoor, I assume it was hard courts. Yeah, all hard courts. And then I went to go speak up at Ferris. Oh wow! Um, about I guess that was about six or seven years ago, and they had built one clay court, really not play on I think it was just to maintain it I see so, because a lot of these kids are going you know to clubs in the south where most nice country clubs in the south have have clay courts and most tennis directors look at clay courts as well that's grunt work for my staff to do so they um they built I remember seeing it outside the, the indoor courts which I thought was a cool, a cool thing, and, and um, you know, Ferris definitely had fast uh, indoor courts. Did you play on the tennis team up there? Just out of curiosity, did you? No, my, my first year we were so good. We had a guy named August Marno playing number one. Kurt Hammersmith, him and Kurt won the Division Two doubles championship. Resulting, uh, August, I think. Aga at the time was from, he's from Indonesia. He yeah. was he had, he was a voluntary kid. He um, 
he was about 500 in the world, and I, he had just when I got up there, he had just beat Axie on tour. Wow. Um, very salty. But he, pretty salty. Very salty. Yeah, yeah. Very good. So then my next year, that's when I decided to go nine months down for my internship at uh, Johns Island. As I progressed, our the team started to get a little weaker for whatever reason. It just was very loaded the first year. And I look back on it, I should have played probably my junior and senior year, but by that time, I was getting kind of tennised out, burned out, because I was teaching, you know, during the summers, I was working at a tennis facility, and then during the year at Ferris, I was teaching there at the facility, because when when it was Thanksgiving or weeks where kids would go home or weekends, I couldn't go. I mean, I was, you know, I was thousands of miles away from home. Yeah, it's way too long to drive. So, yeah. So, um, I don't know. I kind of got a little bit. Uh, but when I was at John's Island, John's Island doing the internship, I remember a guy telling me he was watching me work a clinic. And this was an old, an older guy, tennis pro. This was a this was a light bulb moment for me. After I, after he watched, after my hour lesson, he watched some of it, clinic. He said, you know, if you bounce a ball, when I fed the ball, I didn't bounce it. I just took it out of my hand and hit, hit the uh, ball with my racket. And he was like, if you bounce a ball. And you teach eight hours. If you bounce one every time, you'll get paid forty minutes for bouncing a ball. <laughs> and I thought to myself, if that guy, who has already been a teacher for about twenty-five years, if he is already thinking about that, then he definitely does not need to be in the profession of teaching tennis. That's terrible. He, he was burned uh, out. He was definitely fried. Th that's that's worse than clock watching. Yes. That's uh, I guess bounce counting. It's terrible. Yeah. So, you know, that started getting my mind wondering. You know, I'm gonna have to be. I'm gonna. This this might be something where it's a passion of mine, and I might learn to hate it if I don't be careful with it. Sure. Um, it's like eating you know, candy. Too so, much candy. So, so once you once you're through at Ferris State, you, you got a job. Did you did you immediately go down to Florida, Kentucky? Where, where, where'd you go after Ferris State? No, I went to Kentucky. Okay. I got my first job, uh, like out of college there, at Louisville, Kentucky, working um, at the Louisville Country Club. Um, matter of fact, I'll tell you all this right quick. The tennis director there is Magnus Gustafsson, mm -hmm. not the Magnus Gustafsson that was on. The tour. This is another Magnus Gustafsson from Sweden. Uh, he went to Ferris. Maybe was there for about a year. I've, I've stayed great friends with Magnus. And over the last year, he has put in a red clay court at the Louisville Country Club. But it's like European uh, brick. Like they shipped over tons of red clay from Europe and they have a real this is not like red colored hard true this is a real 
uh, red, European red clay court. So it's that, um, that brick, but, that crushed brick, orangey color clay, rather than the, the yes. darker red we usually have in the States. Yeah, and Magnus knows I'm crazy about clay quartz, so he, he sent me photos of the whole process of them putting this court in. I have yet to see it in person, but uh, I'm just sort of fascinated by it. But <clears throat> I work there. That's a great club, very old, traditional um, country club. Yeah. And, and um, from there, I went to Winston-Salem, and... Um, actually got into business with John McClam, who y'all mentioned earlier. John yeah. and I have been friends since we were kids playing junior tennis in North Carolina. And John played at East Carolina um, and was also a tennis pro. And we went into business together, started a little tennis company uh, where we were teaching. And then the, the tennis director job opened up in Winston-Salem. And I, got, I was lucky enough to get that job. Congrats. Did, you beat, did you beat Johnny out for the job? Did he apply no, for it? No, he did not. He was working at the Forsyth Country Club, oh, and then later on, a couple of years later, he left to go to Texas to teach, and I took his position there at the Forsyth Country Club in Winston-Salem. We're, we're at the club, actually, where he taught in Dallas at Bentree Country Club. Uh, that's where I ran into him in the early 90s. Yeah. About the time he left, he came to Bentree, and I was down at another club. And we met and been friends okay, ever since. Cool. Yeah, so but we're standing at the club where he he taught. If you're watching on Facebook Live, and John John's watching, he he sees us uh, at Bentry Country Club in Dallas. Okay, great. Yeah, great. Um, and then um, from there, I uh, I took a job back at Cabarrus Country Club in my hometown, and I kind of had. I kind of knew then I would I would be getting out of tennis eventually. You felt it, um, huh? I, In Concord, yeah, I just sort of, I don't know. You know, what's what's odd about the tennis industry is for you to get for you to get a really good tennis director job, you're not going to get hired at usually 26, 27, 28. You got to be about 40 years old before you get one of these top great jobs. Now that was this is twenty years ago or more. Maybe things have changed. I don't know what the landscape is. Um, I think you're right. But um, you know, I just I don't. I mean, you know, you work at a country club. You work six days a week. Sometimes it's when when the weather's warm, it's you're working ten to twelve, fourteen hours. And uh, I just got to the point where you know did I want one of the loves of my life to be to be uh, end in divorce or <laughs> keep a great relationship with uh, with the sport, and I kind of so glad I I didn't beat it then. I didn't uh, beat it to the ground, so is, I got out of it. That's a good time. analogy. That's a great analogy. So no divorce, and you still date tennis in a romantic way, <laughs> but. Yeah. We got to transition into who you did marry, yeah. uh, which is the music business, right? So once you once you yes. started thinking about your options, music came back into your mind around 2000, I guess. Is that correct? That is correct. In the late 90s, I started. I started. I bought some records from an artist that I really loved from England, and 
he he was on major labels here in the United States and in uh, in Europe at, at some certain points of his career. Then then he went the indie routes, and that's when I ordered some records from him. He noticed I was from North Carolina, and he loves um, music from uh, this state, and so I started kind of a thing where I brought him over in in uh, 2000 to go on a little tour of North Carolina and introduce him to a lot of great uh, folk and acoustic music. You've got to tell uh, us who this is. is. Say it again? Can, can you tell us who this is, this British guy? Oh, yeah. It, so his name is Martin Stevenson. He's from Newcastle, England. His, his band was Martin Stevenson and the Dainties. They mm -hmm. were kind of a post-punk band. He was on Capitol Records here in the United States, and he was on London Records in Europe. Um, but, so when he came over on this little tour in 2000, um, I learned then that, and at the time, I, I'm uh, I'm not in the music business yet, but I realized then that uh, musicians need help. They're they're much probably like professional tennis players. They're kind of one one. Uh, they have one kind of goal, and that's uh, to make music and art. And so I learned quickly that um, I could maybe somehow make this into a profession. Um, now, working at country clubs, you have to kind of develop a good gift of gab. With people, because, yes. Yes, with people. And, you know, when you're not feeling, feeling like... Um, when you're not feeling like um, being outward and being uh, the life of the party, you have to be that life of the party. You've got to ask, how's little Johnny doing? And how's, you know, he, he, he. so there's a lot of it. That gift to Gav from working at country clubs has helped me out in the music business for sure. Definitely a correlation between the two. That's for sure. I was th thinking a lot about of that. yeah. I mean, it's yeah. it's it, music is definitely one of our passions. Uh, both of us on the show, um, you know, I would say second to tennis. Correct. Yeah. yeah I mean, we're into film and yeah. comedy and whatever, also. But uh, that's that's fantastic, and yeah. I like the link between the tennis business uh, and and being a music guy. Hello, everyone. This is Dave the Brain. Thank you so much for listening to part one of episode 32 with Dolph Ramsewer. Stay tuned for part two of this interview next week and be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as we're always talking about tennis news as it seems to us.